Yes, awesome. So we're doing a series called Journey Through the Old Testament, Embracing 80s Journey. And I got really bad news for you. If you were two minutes late, you missed the entire version of that live. Uh, but we have some more services this weekend, so maybe you can catch them. Um, but we're going to wrap up the series today. This is our finale. And, and what we've been looking at is the, the big picture story, the meta narrative of the Old Testament that, that really focus on five locations where five key things happen. And, and if you understand this story, everything else around it makes sense. And so to kind of, we're going to pick right up where we left off last week. And so I want to kind of recap this. Uh, each week we've taken a location, but we've also, ta- also taken a journey song because it was just too perfect. And so week one, we started at the beginning of the Bible in the garden. The garden. And the song was separate ways because in the garden we're introduced to the main character of the Bible who is God. Yes, you're doing it. Last service, somebody goes, us. I'm like, no. God, but he also, uh, we also creates humans and we're kind of a big part of the story. But God who takes, death brings life, darkness brings light, chaos brings order. And then he does create humans to be with us and as, has us rule in his good earth on, our, on his behalf. But the only problem was in the garden, we decided we didn't want to live his way and we went separate ways. So we fast forward, uh, uh, they leave the garden, God starts this specific nation with this family called Abraham. We jumped 2,500 years later and we're kind of introduced to the beginning of the journey of God with his people and that leads us to Egypt. Egypt, where God met us with open arms. Egypt, yes. And so Egypt is important because they had been enslaved for 400 years. And so while Garden is the main character and it's where it started, Egypt is the place of rescue and redemption. It's where God says, I've seen your misery. I've heard your cries. I care about it. And I am going to rescue you. The cries always inaugurate movement when it comes to God because his heart is compassion. And so um, they leave Egypt. It's this crazy story. And only a few months later, they are led to this place where something really important happens. They come to the mountain called... Sinai, our third location. Say it with me. Faithfully. There it is. You guys, you don't know any of the songs or the lyrics. You don't know who the main character of the Bible is, but you know that. Okay, cool. What a church. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, Faithfully. Why faithfully? Because after he rescued and redeemed them, he wanted to make sure they didn't create some crazy system where it was like what they escaped. And so he says, I got to give you a mission. I got to give you an identity. And so he gave them his words, the Ten Commandments. And he says, basically, his commitment to us is, I'm forever yours faithfully. And so Sinai, um, he's going to lead his people into the promised land. They're going to build a culture. They're going to build a nation. They're going to establish themselves. And that takes us to where Brandon brought us last week. And it's the culmination of the promise. They're in the promised land. They have some of the favor. They have some of the blessing. They establish the capital nation of their nation of Israel, which we know as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What's Jerusalem? Jerusalem is we made it. You're, you're not a slave anymore. You know who you are. Now here's the mission to maintain justice and righteousness. And Brandon did a great job last week of laying out the idea of that. It's where we use our favor and our blessing, not as favoritism, but to take care of and bless other people. Amen. 
And so uh, Jerusalem is really important because it's the best it ever got, especially at the time of King Solomon, which is what we're going to talk about. Uh, and so I know we've kind of went through these people, but let me just real quick show you a timeline of, of what we know of as human history. We're not going to talk about how old the earth might be, but we do know there's about 4,000 years of human history from the time of Adam and Eve to Jesus. And so we started in the garden. We jumped... F- 2,500 years into uh, Egypt, which was right around 1500 BC, 1491. That's where Egypt happened. A couple months later is where Sinai happened. Uh, And so that's the same timeline. And then over the next almost four to 500 years is the establishment. It's where you see the kings and chronicles and all those stories. And that brings us to Jerusalem, which is where we were last week. Um, And that kind of takes us, they've established Jerusalem. They build, and they build two really important things in in Jerusalem, which really kind of, solidify their establishment as a nation. They build a palace. Who lives in palaces? Kings. And they build a temple. Who dwells in temples? Gods. Every nation that had any sort of validity had a temple and a palace. It said we have made it. And Solomon was the one who constructed both of those. But it was literally the promise he made to Abraham all the way back in 2000 BC. And so there's kind of your timeline uh, of where we are at. And so we find ourselves in Jerusalem. We pick up there. And I'm really excited because this story tells itself. So I'm going to read a lot of scripture because I really am just going to show you what happens. You don't need my opinion. You don't need my narrative. It's pretty remarkable when you just read what's in the text. And I filtered some of the stuff. And so I gave you the kind of the cliff notes need to know. Uh, But a couple questions that we have to ask ourselves is this. Now that they're in Jerusalem, they're literally kind of on top of the world. They're a little bit of a superpower. Solomon is wealthy. He's wise. They got people coming from all over the world going, we need help. We need wisdom. They have made it. They've made it. It's success. It's a thousand years after this promise and they're there. And so some questions we have to ask ourselves as we look into this story is how would they use their favor and blessing? Would they cling to God? Would they cling to his ways? Would they remember his commands? Would they obey him? Would they study his words? Would they stay faithful to him? Would they live out their mission and identity, which was to what? Maintain justice and righteousness. See, the whole plan was God was said, I'm going to show the world what I'm like through how you live and treat each other because it's going to be so vastly different than everybody else. That's what it meant to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so, so we're going to ask ourselves, how did they do? But in order for us to know how do they do, we actually have to go back to Sinai for a minute. We have to go back to the time where God brings Moses and he says, here's how you're supposed to live. Here are some really important things. Here are the instructions. And so I want to take you back to Deuteronomy that have some specific instructions where God tells Moses all this time ago, here are some really important factors. So let's dive into this real quick. Deuteronomy 17 says, starting in verse 14, God tells Moses, when you enter the land that I'm going to give you and you've taken possession of it and you've settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, which if you fast forward to Samuel, they ask for a king. God says, you don't want a king. They say, we want a king. God says, you don't want a king. They say, we want a king. God says, I'm going to give you a king, but you're going to ask for relief and I'm not going to give it because a king is just going to tax you, take your land, make your girls be his servants and make your boys be in his army, which that's what kings have only historically ever done. Uh, So he says, when you ask for a king like all the nations, watch this, verse 15, some very important instructions. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord chooses. Like, let me be in charge. He must be from among the nation of fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire a great number of horses, okay, for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. Egypt had great horses, like German-engineered cars, uh, horses. He said, don't go back to Egypt because you were slaves there, and I've told you, do not ever go back that way. Verse 17, he must not take many wives, 
probably just generally good advice, uh, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So he's giving very specific instructions about how they're to live in the king. He says when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest, the one Moses was given by God. It is to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere the Lord and follow carefully the words of this law and decree. And this part's crazy, verse 20. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. So he's like, you're just one of the dudes. You might be a king. You're just, like, you just do B-dubs and Monday Night Football like everybody else. Like, that's kind of how that works. It says, and turn from the law, and he says, nor turn from the law to the right or the left. Then if you do these things, he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom of Israel. The only other detail I'm going to add to that was 10 chapters before in the same instructions. In addition to not taking many wives, he was also specific about what type of wife to take uh, as a probably a good father should be. In verse one, he says, when you go into the land that you're entering and you drive out all the nations who uh, have other kings and more importantly, here's what you need to know, serve other gods. They're loyal to other religions and gods. He says this in verse three, do not intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? Because they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. So what I did is I real quick gave us a quick list. This is doable. Like we could do this, right? This is just like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 things. Do this and we're gonna like live in the promised land. We're gonna be God's favored people. And so real quick, just a quick recap. Don't get a bunch of horses. If you do, don't get them from Egypt. Don't take many wives. Don't take a lot of gold and silver. Study and revere the words of God. Don't be, consider yourself better than other Israelites and don't marry foreign wives, right? Like that's doable. That's not, a, that's not like, a, a, you know, chronicles and a encyclopedia and a constitution. And we, you know, it's like, we can do this. And so God says, you do this, you reign. I'm going to keep blessing you. You keep blessing the world. And even though it's a broken world, the idea was it's the closest thing to heaven and the closest thing to the garden we've ever got. You're going to be my people. You're going to live so different. And by the way that you live and treat each other and treat foreigners and don't have slaves and don't oppress people and don't do these things like everyone else, the world's going to know what I'm like and we're going to lead more people to me. That was the plan, right? So then the question we should ask is, how'd they do? And here's the best part. I don't have to convince you of anything. I'm just going to show you what's in the Bible. Now you know that list. Let's just pick up. We're going to pick up in 1 Kings 9. Why 1 Kings 9? Because that is when Solomon becomes a king. He was David's son. David wanted to build a temple. God said, no, you killed way too many people, but your son can build me a temple. And so Solomon builds a temple. Solomon builds a palace. And so 9, 10, and 11 are the accounts of Solomon. And we're just going to read this. I just want to show you what the Bible says in light of what I just showed you. How'd they do? And remember, this all started when they left where? Egypt. And what were they in Egypt? Okay. Verse 15 of chapter nine, Solomon, how did he do? Here's the account of the forced labor. Whoops. <laughs> Haven't even made it a sentence. <laughs> so the same thing they left, they've already created. Solomon's got slaves. Okay. Well, maybe it's not that bad. Let's just keep going. Here's the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, terraces, and wall of Jerusalem, Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer, had set it on fire and killed the Canaanite inhabitants, and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, who was Solomon's wife. <laughs> Whoops. So we got slaves. We're marrying foreign women. That's not the best two-sentence start, right? But maybe, I mean, he's still like five out of seven. Let's just keep going. Let's see how it goes. 
Uh, verse 27, we'll jump down. Um, it says, And Haram and his men, sailors who knew the sea, to serve the fleet with Solomon's men. So Solomon had a navy. Maybe he was a world protector. They sailed to Ophir and brought back 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to Solomon. Mm, that's like um, several thousand pounds of gold. Sounds like we're collecting gold. Is that a problem? No, unless you were told don't collect a lot of gold. <laughs> Whoops. Okay. Well, let's go to verse, let's go to chapter 10 because there's some highlights here. We see that we see the grand, kind of the grand expanse of Solomon's wisdom in his kingdom. Ver, uh, chapter 10, kings and queens and, and magistrates would come from all over the world to see his splendor and hear from his wisdom. One was the queen of Sheba. Verse one, the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to God. And so she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Solomon knocked him out of the park. Uh, and so in verse three, it says, Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain. When the queen of Sheba saw the wisdom of Solomon, the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made in the temple, she was overwhelmed. She was like, whoa, dude, you got it going on. You are wise, you have all the things. And what's really, really interesting is this queen of Sheba would have been a queen of a foreign nation who would have served foreign gods, yet God still used her as a prophetic voice to remind Solomon of his mission and his identity. Watch this in verse nine and 10. Her response to all that God had done in, in Israel and for King David and for King Solomon is exactly what it was always meant when he gives us favor, when he gives us influence, when he gives us opportunities. It's what's supposed to happen when we let our sh light shine before men so they can see our good deeds, but they can give glory to who? God. Watch this. First Kings chapter 10, verse nine. Her response to all this is praise be the Lord, your God, not you, the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you. He has placed you on the throne of Israel. And because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to do what? Maintain righteousness and justice. That was what the prophet said. You have this foreign queen who serves a foreign God going, don't forget, your role is different than ours. Maintain justice and righteousness. But again, we see a couple of verses down as they continue to lay out his splendor. We also see another problem that we've seen before in verse 14. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 25 tons. Homie got 50,000 pounds of gold every year. Oh, by the way, not including revenues from merchants, traders, and the Arabian kings, governors of the territories. Again, awesome for him, unless your instructions were don't collect a lot of gold. Well, okay, that's another. Let's just keep going. But let's see how he's doing in the other areas. Let's jump down to verse 18. Because King, you remember, he's just not better than anybody else. He's just one of the dudes, right? Well, maybe he did that one pretty well. Verse 18. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory, overlaid it with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its background had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them like you do. Twelve lions stood on each of the six steps, one at either each of the step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and the household of the articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because he had so much silver it was of little value like stones. The king had a fleet of trading ships in the sea along with the ships of Haram. Once every three years, the ships returned carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, and baboons. You know what we need up in here? Some monkeys. <laughs> Tell the Navy, you better not just come back with gold and silver and the Cypress of Lebanon. I want some apes and baboons. Does that sound like a guy who comes to your Christmas party on Thursday night? 
Is that just one of the B-dubs Monday Night Football dudes? Yeah, every guy had apes and baboons and an ivory, and he had all this gold, right? So how's he doing not being better than anybody else in his kingdom? Not really one of the guys. Okay, well, maybe, well, let's just, maybe it gets better. Later on in chapter 10, verse 26, it says Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. Well, maybe he didn't have very many. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Hey, but it's okay. Maybe they were local. Let's go to verse 28. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. You're killing me, Smalls. We're marrying foreign women. We got gold coming out our ears. We're the biggest deal on the planet. And now we're getting horses from Egypt. What about the women? Let's go to chapter 11. Good prediction. My notes literally say, oops. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. I'm sure he did. He had 700 wives of royal birth. I have so many questions. (laughs) Not to mention 300 regular girls. It says 300, nobody, that's funny if you know what this is, 300 concubines. And his wives did what? Led him astray. I have so many thoughts, I'm not going to say any of them. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord after God as the heart of David, his father, had been. What was the whole problem? Don't marry foreign women because they'll worship your gods. This isn't the women's problem. You're a dummy. And we know that you're going to go wherever they go. So keep it to me. Keep it to Yahweh. Keep it to Adonai. Keep it to El Shaddai. So this is not some philosophy on like why we shouldn't have interracial marriage. This is 3,000 years ago and things have changed since then. So if you find somebody that's a different ethnicity you and she loves Jesus, put a ring on it. That's all I'm saying. Or he loves Jesus. But meet with Pastor Brian first. What did he do? He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the instructions of the Lord completely as David, his father, has done. This is sad. God didn't ask a lot. He didn't ask a lot. And he's batting zero. He's swinging and missing. He has struck out. He has done everything opposite of what the Lord has done and what has asked. And where have we heard that before? Oh, I don't know, the garden? Hey, you can have everything, just don't eat that tree. Yeah, but what if we just eat the tree? You would think they would know better, right? And here's what we learn in Jerusalem. It's the same thing we see in success, and it's the same thing we see in humanity throughout history. Do you know what humans are notoriously terrible at? Managing success. We're horrible at managing success. I heard a leader once say, if you, want to know, if you want to really know who you are, get a little bit of success behind you, have a little bit of freedom, and you really find out what's inside of you. And this is with Solomon. And so the question is, so now we have Jerusalem has literally become the system it left in Egypt. They've gotten it all backwards. They've literally become the system of injustice and oppression that they were rescued from. The oppressed have now become the oppressors. And by the way, there were seven Jewish festivals every year. And do you know what the core central theme of every festival was? Remember, 
Remember I delivered you from Egypt. Remember the covenant I made uh, with Abraham. Remember how Esther saved. I mean, every single one of those are are a memento to something God had done. You know what they forgot? What it was like to be slaves. Well, how do I know that? Because they have slaves. And what they use their slaves to do, build their own kingdom. What did Pharaoh do? Use them to build his kingdom. They forgot what it was like. They are causing evil to the people in the exact same way it was caused to them 400 years prior. It's a picture, and this is sobering. This is a picture of what happens to us as followers of God when we do not maintain justice and righteousness and instead use our wealth, use our resources to preserve and maintain and build our own kingdom versus bless and take care of other people. And it doesn't have to, see, here's the word we get all messed up. Like, what are you just saying? I just need to live in a box. No, it doesn't have to be either or in the kingdom. It's both and. I'm going to give you favor and I'm going to bless you. And I'm probably going to keep trusting you with more of it if you keep taking care of people with it. It doesn't have to be either or. And many of you experience this. You live this. Some of us are on this journey. We have what we have to bless those in need, not just further our own comfort. And they, they were guilty of the very sin that Brandon warned us about last week is they mistook their blessing in their favor for favoritism. God loves everybody the same. They were the kingdom of priests in the holy nation, but they were just meant to use it to help other people. So then that, now the question is, they've completely blown it. They've literally created the wrong, they've created the exact same system they were in Egypt. Do you see that? Just they flipped it. And God didn't rescue them so that they could be the oppressors. He rescued them so they could build something completely different. Amen? So now the question is, what happens? Does God just let them reign supreme? Does he rain down fire? Is it just like, like what, what happens? And so we are going to see, the book of Chronicles is actually the closest thing to a timeline we have in the Old Testament. It chronicles the kings. And it gives, it gives us kind of this great synopsis at the very end of the second book, chapter 36, it says this. So in light of what I just read you, we're still in Jerusalem. The answer is, what happened? Here's what happened. Then the Lord God of their ancestors, verse 15, sent word to them through his messengers. What were those messengers called? Prophets. Again and again. That sounds like a really patient God to me. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. In fact, hundreds of years, about 400 years of you're not living the way I've asked you to live. You're, you've built the wrong system. You aren't worshiping me. You are literally doing nothing I've asked you to do. Come back, come back. It's return, 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 return. Return to who I've created you to be. Return to how I've created you to live. You're enslaving other people. You're using your resources for yourself. You're completely missing it. Return, return, return. And it says why. Why did he, why was he so patient? Why was he so caring? We see the heart of God from the beginning because he had pity on two things. His people and his dwelling place. What's his dwelling place? Temple. Why does he care so much about those two places? It's the only place they hang out together. It's always been about God being with his people. It's always been about the communion and the communication. So why does he care about the temple? Because that's where his presence is. Why does he care about us? Because we come into his temple and it's always from the garden. Let's be together. And so he's like, man, I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to be patient. Come home, come home, come home, come back, come back, come back. I'll just give you two examples. I mean, when you, so when you look at the Bible, you're like, man, all these names, like, Esther, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's half the Old Testament. Did you know you're just going to read the same story every single time? It's the same story. What is it? Y'all are are wilding out. Y'all are crazy. You're fools. You know what God said. Come back. And you know what the response of the people is every single time? Nah, we like it this way better. Any way you want it, that's the way you need it. 
In fact, they got so tired of the prophets, you know what they started doing? Killing them. Malachi said in chapter 3, he said, I, the Lord, do not change. He said, tell them, tell them. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you haven't kept them. What's his invitation? Return to me. And what will he do? I'll return to you, says the Lord. Zechariah, different prophet, different land, different time, same message. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord. And what? I will return to you. Do not be like your ancestors. I could show you in almost every prophet book in the Old Testament, there's some sort of invitation where God basically says, come back to me and I will come back to you. You don't have to lose it all. We don't have to go back. But, but he's, then he started, they stopped listening. So you know what he started doing? Warning them. You know what the warning was? Remember where I found you? Which, by the way, where did he find them? Slavery. Where did God find most of us? Oppressed, depressed, addicted, slavery. Does, didn't most of us meet God at rock bottom at some point? This is, the, this is not just their story, it's our story. Remember where I found you? Remember where I met you? You know what his warning is? If you keep going this way, you're gonna end up right back where you started. Well, what makes me think that? Chronicles. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary. He didn't spare young men or women or the elderly or the infirmed and he gave, God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried them into Babylon with all the articles of the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and the officials. They set fire to God's temple. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile into Babylon the remnant, a few leftover people who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his successors until the king of Persia came into power. And then they served the king of Persia, and then they served the king of Greece, and then they served the Roman Empire for the next five to six hundred years. And so what's our fifth location? Babylon. Do you know what the saddest part about the Old Testament is? It ends where it starts. What is Babylon? If, if, if Egypt is rescue and redemption, and Sinai is mission and identity, and, and, and Jerusalem is living out your purpose of, of maintaining righteousness and justice. Do you know what Babylon is? Back into slavery in a foreign land. And they're going to be told to like bow down to images and worship kings. And they're going to have to learn new magic. And they're going to have to learn new languages. And they're going to get castrated. And they're going to be told that they're never going home. And they're going to hear stories about how Israel lays in ruins and Jerusalem lays in ruins and the, wars, and the walls torn down and the temple is no more and they don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's their story. Why? Because they refused to use what they had to take care of other people. They refused to listen to God. They wanted to do it their way and because they did it their way, the story ends where it begins. In fact, in Daniel chapter one, we see um, it says in the third year, this is the beginning of Daniel, another prophet. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jehoiakim was the last king of, e of Israel in 586 BC. Israel became a nation in 1948. For 2,500 years, they weren't a nation. There's people in this room who were alive in 1948. It took that long for them to get back. 2,500 years. Why? Why? because they stopped being who God created them to be. 
And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with the articles of the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple to his God in Babylonia and put in the treasury of the house of his God. So again, we see Babylon back into slavery into a foreign land. And so this, the Old Testament is literally a cycle. Genesis is your setup chapter that tells you how it began, who God is, what he does. He establishes this nation of, of Israel with the promise to Abraham. And Exodus through Babylon is literally a cycle of rescue, identity, mission, but we can't help ourselves and we find ourselves right back where we started. And so in Babylon, we're back into slavery in a foreign land. Why? Because we are notoriously terrible at managing resources and handling success. We get confused. We start using for ourselves. We can't help our own selfishness, our own self-indulgence. We get greedy. We cannot help ourselves. And it's happened to Israel. It's happened to other nations. And it happens to you and I. And the same story is, is our story. God's saying, if you've lost your way, if you're in slavery, or if you used to be, and now you've kind of forgotten what this is about, the invitation to us is the same as it was to them, which is what? Come home. Come back. Come back. And God is slow to anger, full of grace, compassionate, and to, uh, to generation upon generation. And so there's not this, it's not meant to be fear, but there better have a, a, a respectful, like, God ain't playing. He told them, you're going to end up there. Now, they, there's instructions throughout all that, but the story ends where it begins. And so guess what happens in Babylon? They start crying out for a solid four or five hundred years. And actually, even though this is the end of this series, the finale to this series is actually next week because we're starting our Christmas series called Christ Mess, how Christ comes in the middle of a mess. And you're gonna see the end of the Old Testament's gonna start, sound a whole lot like Exodus. 400 years of silence and slavery, crying out for a rescue. And what's the promise that we have from God starting in Exodus 3? How often does he hear the cries? Always. How often does he see the suffering? How often does he come to have a rescue plan? And so do you know what they did for the last 500 years? They started begging for a new Moses. And that's what takes us to Christmas. But this week is about Babylon. And I can't help but wonder how many of us, if, if we're not truly honest with ourselves, either have, we're just in slavery and God's inviting you home, or we've kind of lost our way. We kind of forgot what this thing's about. And we have an opportunity to look ourselves in the mirror just like the prophets did time after time and go, God, am I really living how you've called me to live? As we've done almost every, every week, I'm going to have Bible Project help us bring this home. There's something about being home, where everything's just right. We're surrounded by people we love and trust. There's a feeling of stability and safety. And while some people get to experience this kind of home, many do not. Others might even be forced to leave their home and go live in a foreign land, we call this going into exile. Yeah, in exile, everything is disoriented. You're in the unknown. And in the story of the Bible, this is where the ancient Israelites found themselves, conquered by Babylon, living in exile far from their homeland. And so they had to ask themselves, how did we end up here? And is there any hope of going home? And the whole story of the Bible is designed to address those very questions. The whole story? Really? Yeah, go back to the first pages of the Bible. Where does humanity live? Okay, they live in this really sweet garden, their home. And they're there on one condition, that they trust and follow God's one command, and they don't. And so the consequence is banishment from the garden. Ah, they're sent into exile. Exactly. And so this story has been designed to set you up for Israel's story. 
how they were given the gift of the promised land and were able to stay there on one condition, that they be faithful to the terms of their covenant relationship with God. Uh, They didn't, and they were sent into exile. And if you still don't see the parallel between exile from the garden and exile from Israel, think about this. In Genesis, humanity's exile led up to the story about the building of what city? Oh yeah, Babylon. The same place the Israelites are sent. But that's not the end of either story. In the first Babylon, God called Abraham to leave and travel to the Promised Land. And that story was designed to give hope to the Israelites currently living in the later Babylon. Now eventually, they do get to leave and travel back to their promised homeland. And when they did, it wasn't home sweet home. Oppressive empires were still ruling over them, and the people kept acting in the same corrupt ways as their ancestors. And so the biblical prophets said that exile wasn't actually over. How could they think they were still in exile when they're at home? Yeah, this is really important. In the Hebrew scriptures, Israel's Babylonian exile became an image of something more universal. It's that feeling of alienation and longing for something more no matter where you live. Yeah, I I can relate to this. I have a great home, but it's situated in a world scarred with pain and broken relationships, death, tragedy, done by others, but also done by me. And so in the Bible, exile is the human condition. We all keep repeating this pattern of human corruption leading to a Babylon that we can't escape. And it doesn't matter where you live, we are all longing for a better home. And so as we've said almost every week, this isn't just the Old Testament story, and it is, it's the narrative, but it's also our story. The story of humanity is that God rescues us, and if we allow him to, often he'll give us our mission, our identity, he'll show us who we are. And where the rubber meets the road is what will we do with that mission and identity? Will we use it purely for ourselves, or will we truly be blessed so that we can be a blessing? By the way, that was the covenant to Abraham in 2000 BC. I'm gonna bless you so you can bless others. And so I believe that there's two applications to that in the here and now. Maybe you're like Egypt or Babylon. You're like, I am, I'm addicted, I'm depressed, I'm in slavery, like I am a slave. But if you're telling me that God sees my misery, hears my cries, I'm ready to come home. Like this ain't working. The invitation has never not been, come home, come home. That's why there's a big sign. I don't know if you saw it when you walked in. It says, welcome home because there's no place like home, and home is with your heavenly Father. But I also think there's another, a group of us that perhaps we've kind of, we're somewhere in the cycle, and maybe we've, we, 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 we're not in slavery anymore, we got God, but we kind of forgot what this is about. We kind of got maybe focused on the kids or the career, or, or we got a little distracted, and, and we just need to return to being who God created us to be, committed to his ways, committed to his word, and looking for how we can use what we have to bless others and show the world what God is like through the way we behave and treat each other. Not by what we believe and not by where we go to church. Come on, somebody. Nobody cares where you go to church and nobody gives a rip what you believe. Do you know what they care about? How you treat them. And God said, that's gonna be the key indicator of who you worship and how they know what I'm like. And so we're called to be salt of the world, light of the earth. And he said, let them see it and let them give me glory, just like Queen Sheba did to Solomon. And so the invitation at the end of this is the same it was in the garden, it's the same it's always been with Jesus, and it's never changed. Come home, come home. And so maybe you've drifted, it's time to come back. 
Maybe you've never come home. It's time to come home. I'm just going to close in a prayer and you get to deal with your heart between you and God. Before I pray, I want to say this. If you need uh, a conversation or deeper prayer, we got a ministry team in our prayer room. We'd love to pray with you. They're also available online. Second, if you've never come home before and this is your first time, the one thing we would ask you to do before you leave is that you would text the word KPS to 94000 because we want to make sure you know how to live at home well and we want you to stay home. And so we're not going to bombard you, but we wanted to celebrate with you. I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to allow you to do some heart work with you and, and Jesus while I pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words. Thank you for your story. The story of your people, the story of the Old Testament, which is also the story of the New Testament, which is also our story. A story of a God who goes into chaotic, dark, hopeless situations and upon invitation brings light and life. And you are so patient. You are so gracious. You are so full of love that God, if we were to dare uh, uh, lay our pride down, lay our humanity down and allow you in our lives, allow ourselves to trust you, that you would bring us home and that you would transform our lives. And so God, I pray that anybody who's never said yes to you would say in this moment would, would come home and make that decision. I've decided to follow Jesus. And anybody else, God, who's maybe we've mistaken your favor and blessing for favoritism, would you just have a redirect? Would you have a recalibration? Would you remind us what we're to be doing with our time, our energy, our resources, our knowledge, our education? That you're not asking us maybe to sell it all, but to be reminded that while you take care of us, you want us to be looking out to take care of other people. And the more you can trust us with your resources, the more we would choose to bless other people. Thank you for always calling us home. Thank you that next week is the greatest ending to the craziest story ever because you sent the once and for all Moses, the once and for all Savior, the once and for all Messiah that would set this thing right forever. So I pray this week as we go out that we would not uh, be slaves, that we would not enslave other people, but we would show the world what you are like by how we treat one another. In Jesus' name, amen.